So I will be honest that when I was asked to speak, I thought I was speaking about faith and work. And then a couple days ago, he said, no, you're doing a testimony to inspire people. And I'm like, oh dear. Okay. So I'm not a professional speaker and I wouldn't say I'm inspiring, but I do have, um, an amazing story um, that God has woven through my life that hopefully will be inspiring. Um, I'm going to start by telling you, um, it's really a bit of my story of faith. It's a bit of the story of the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, but it's really a story of God's work. But I don't know about you all, but I spend week to week, day to day, hour to hour on this pendulum that goes back and forth between I'm not good enough or I'm better than. And it's really supposed to be I'm God's child and I'm in the middle and I'm not on either extreme. But my pendulum goes back and forth during this speech. I mean, in the last 30 seconds, I've thought, oh no, I'm not doing good enough, right? I'm over here. Then maybe at the end, someone will say, oh, that was amazing. I'll be like, oh, I'm better than the other speaker, right? So we do it all day, every day. So I'm gonna take you back. I became a believer through young life, but then for a big chunk of my career, my life, um, I threw Jesus in the trunk. Um, So this is me graduating from graduate school. So I'd been in banking for a few years and that is my husband, Paul. And we were like ready to take on the world. We both had these great new MBAs from Northwestern. I had this amazing job in consulting. He had a great job in investments. We were about to get married, go on a honeymoon. And we thought all of life would be up and to the right because we were shiny pennies and we had done what you're supposed to do. We are hard workers and hard workers have up and to the right stories. And so we went from super young and optimistic to we're a little bit older now, we're a little bit wiser now. And what we figured out was that there is no up and to the right. It's just a big fat splattered mess. And we have figured out that that's actually better than up and to the right. It's taken a a while, but we actually are thankful for the splattered mess. And so when we are in our up and to the right days, I was working for the Boston Consulting Group. My husband had worked for a couple of places, GTCR and Lazard, which are investment houses. I then went on to work for Time Inc. We worked, we lived in Chicago, Singapore, Bangkok, and New York. I took a uh, motorcycle taxi to work when I was in Bangkok because the traffic was so bad. We moved here, he started an investment firm. I got to be on the team that helped start Innsworth. A lot of up and to the rightness because we're shiny hard workers and we can get things done. Um, This is us when we were living in Asia, living in New York City. Um, That child that I'm holding is now 22. So that's how long ago that was. Um, But over those years, we started to see the splatter mess that life is. And so over those years of these, oh, we think everything's up and to the right, we had a very untimely and sudden death of my husband's father. He was only 57, which we thought was kind of old, but since I'm now nearing my mid-50s, it doesn't sound so old. We had two job layoffs, a failed startup of a venture capital fund. We were involved in a lawsuit. We got underwater in real estate two times. I was put on bed rest with two of my pregnancies. We have teenagers that at some times have acted like total idiots. Um, But the most important splatter mess for us was all three of our children have had major life-threatening illnesses. Our second child was born with a birth defect. 
And this was him in his um, incubator right before he was about to go to surgery. He was in the hospital for about 95 days. And one of the issues associated with his birth defect is still plaguing him today. And he's um, 20 years old. Our third child, this is not our third child, um, and I did, may not have the copyright to this slide, so don't take a picture of it. Um, but this is what one month worth of shots looks like for a type one diabetic, and my third child is a type one diabetic. So I'm like, but the, the real um, splatter mess for our family happened on March 2006, and we really marched, mark that day as a before and after day. and so. I call it before and after day, days that you start, they start to be such markers in your life that you unconsciously are saying, oh yeah, that happened before that day. Oh yeah, that was after that day. And that was the day we found out that our older daughter was very, very, very ill. And so to this day, I'll be like, wait, did we live in that house before Charlotte was sick or after? And so it's such a marker. Um, and it was a marker of sadness. Um, and I'll, this story ends happily. She has a happy ending. Um, but what it's also a marker of for us is just um, learning a lot more about God and watching our faith unfold and seeing what comes from that. Um, this is our children right before March 6th, 2006. And just a few weeks later, we got a phone call. Our daughter was acting our oldest daughter. Her name is Charlotte. She's on your right. Um, our oldest daughter was acting um, funny over a number of months. And long story short, after an MRI, we found out that she had a disease attacking her brain that at the time um, they thought was very, very dire. She was in the hospital for quite a while. Um, and we were actually discharged from Vanderbilt Children's Hospital to hospice. And we were told to return in six months, if not expired. And um, that this, is no, this was a really weird, crazy disease. I wish I hadn't even mentioned Vanderbilt's name because they were doing an amazing job giving her care. But the wonderful thing is that it was a misdiagnosis or a miracle or both. And I choose to see it as both. Um, she fell into a coma for a while. Um, we ended up going to Germany for some experimental treatment. We got back from Germany. Um, she fell into another coma. Um, and over four years, she was in four different comas. And so she was no longer terminal, but she did have a diagnosis that they couldn't quite get their arms around how to treat her. Um, this was an incredibly um, hard time for our family, very chaotic. When's the next shoe gonna drop? Okay, things are going better. Okay, back in a coma. Um, but it was also a very formative time. Um, we realize now, and um, we had a self-help Jesus. <laughs> We were bootstrappers that were shiny up and to the right people that called upon Jesus when we needed a little help, but when we didn't, we had things quite fine on our own, thank you. And it was not until we were faced with the potential terminal illness of our child um, that we realized that our worldview didn't really have a way for us to work through that. And that is when we, seriously began to re-engage our faith. Our faith began to be, get re-engaged when we moved to New York City. And so I kind of say Jesus had been in the trunk and then he moved to the back seat. And then when our son was born with that birth defect, he was leaning into the front seat. But when this happened, 
is when um, we finally surrendered and we finally said, we, we cannot do this. We don't understand. Our life isn't, our worldview isn't working anymore. So what we realized was bootstrapping did not work when faced with a fatality. Um, an untimely potential tragedy didn't fit into our worldview. As I mentioned, Jesus came out of the trunk. And we finally realized that our identity could not be in our achievements or our children. It was just, it, they're too fleeting. This is actually my daughter now. Um, she's thriving, she's doing very well. It was a tough five-year battle. Um, and I'm very cognizant. I have a friend who's lost a child and has another with a terminal disease. And so I'm, you know, I mean, it was still hard what we went through and all suffering is relative, but I'm very conscious of the fact that um, this does have a happy ending, um, and I, but I wanna be careful that some suffering ends up differently. Lots of other goodness came. Besides our identity being reshaped, I was off of work for three years during her treatment. And during those three years, I went into kind of major self-study theological boot camp. And I came alive during this time. I just, um, God just met me where I was and just gave me so much good learning. And I ended up into some divinity school classes. I did not finish. I do not have a divinity degree. Um, Another thing that's happened is that recently I've been able to travel with my daughter's physicians, this very rare disease in 2006. They now realize it's a lot more common. It's being diagnosed much more often. And I'm able to provide a parent perspective on rare diseases that's now helpful to physicians trying to figure out how they figure out what healing is and what's not healing. Countless relationships that would have never come about without her illness so many random acts of kindness that were poured upon us, an understanding of the power of prayer, and an institution, the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. So it's really amazing is how all this gets woven together. Um, when people say, how did you get into this work? I say, really bad faith and work theology and a sick child. People are like, I don't really understand that. I'm like, it's super complicated. Um, but the beautiful thing is that while I was in that self-study boot camp, some of the books that I uncovered had to do with faith and work theology. I was like, oh my goodness. I have worked all these years and had it totally wrong. And I specifically remember being in a bank training program and being, um, I had my negotiation test the next day. I had to do a live negotiation and get graded on it. And the day before in church, the pastor at the church where I was sitting in North Carolina did a sermon on blessed are the meek. All I can remember thinking is, oh my goodness, if I'm meek tomorrow, that like, I'm not gonna pass my negotiation test. So I'll just categorize. That's that and this is it. And it created this long history of categorizing. I don't understand, nobody's talking about how to put them together. I don't even know that I'm not putting them together. I just separate them. So I spent most of my career with that and then while my daughter was sick, I read all these books that made me go, ah, I've had it totally wrong. At the same time, um, Scott Sauls was moving to town from um, working up at Redeemer with Tim Keller where the Center for Faith and Work was launched. And so he was walking alongside me, seeing me going through some of this. And when I was in those divinity classes, I ended up writing the plan for the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. 
I took it to him who said, my goodness, I've been praying that we could do this in Nashville sometime. Like, remind me what your name is again? And um, so we really had to work through some things um, because I had not grown up in the PCA. And so we spent a good amount of time, probably a year, talking through things back and forth and thinking about the launch. But NIFW launched, um, I guess this was about, we launched officially about four and a half years ago. And so all this was five or six years ago. It's dedicated to helping individuals and groups integrate the Christian faith into day-to-day work in a way that brings about human and organizational flourishing in Nashville and beyond. And we equip, equip, connect, and mobilize Nashvillians to become agents for the common good through their work in Nashville and beyond. And we've just had some amazing stories. So we do a year-long intensive, and we're in year five of that. So we have 145 soon-to-be alumni of that program. We do some luncheons and some forums, and we work with entrepreneurs, and we do career discernment help. But these people that go through the year intensive, they all do a cultural renewal project. So they all work on shining light on darkness. And they really, we really try to do changed hearts to change communities to change the world. So we really try to encourage people to, to engage the spirit to see what area of darkness in their workplace they can partner alongside God and bring some light to. In some cases, it's making a staff meeting work more functionally. In some cases, it's launching something totally new. But I'll tell you, um, I have a few stories that I could share, but I'll tell you one about someone in a healthcare business. He came to us, he'd been working in Haiti in poverty relief, then he went to Stanford Business School, and then he ended up, I'm checking my time to make sure I could talk about this all day, so I want to make sure I don't go way over. Um, Oh, good, I have some time. So he had been um, working in poverty relief, and then he had gone to Stanford Business School, and then he had taken a job in a large publicly traded healthcare company here in Nashville. And when he came to the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, he was feeling kind of frustrated that he was on this gerbil wheel and he didn't understand how his work mattered and that he really felt like he should still be in poverty relief. And this was his last dish effort to really think through how working for a large publicly traded company um, could in fact matter to God. And so about halfway through the program, when we start praying for our cultural renewal projects or our Shine Light on Darkness projects, um, he was struggling a bit. And he came to me, and um, his project wasn't coming to him. And he literally woke up in the middle of the night. He called me the next day, so excited. He goes, oh, my goodness. It occurred to me in the middle of the night that I have over 700 people in the business unit I manage, and 70% of them are minimum wage workers. He goes, I have the working poor in my business unit, and I'm sitting here yearning to work with the poor in Haiti again. And certainly working with the poor in Haiti is an amazing calling. But he said, I'm ignoring the fact that I have the working poor in my business unit. And so he ended up writing this project whereby he he started looking at the um, people in his business unit, and he noticed that the poor would have absences that would be three days straight. And so he started unraveling what was behind those. And what he realized was that um, something that if it happened to me or maybe some of you would take three hours, if I woke up tomorrow and my car battery was broken, I'd call AAA, hopefully they'd be there in an hour or two, I'd either have a new battery that hour or I would have called Uber and gotten to work, deal with the battery later. And I would maybe be two, four hours late to work at the most. 
he started peeling back the onion, someone um, in this socioeconomic group, their battery would be dead. They couldn't get to work at all that day. They would need to take a bus, which in Nashville can take three hours, to get to the payday loans, to get a loan at a super high interest rate, and then the next day try to get a bus to get somewhere to buy a battery. And you get the point, three days later, their car's fixed so they can go back to work. He started hearing story after story after story. And so he created a system um, or a, a presentation about a system to help people, um, help these minimum wage workers, the company helped them with short-term emergency situations to get them back to work, to get them so they could make their, um, get their paychecks and be at the job. And what he realized was um, the company had all this extra cash on hand and if they could only reduce absenteeism by this much, I mean, by a something like 2%, it would have a huge payoff, this emergency assistant program. But um, this manager that I was working with had no platform to get this done in the company. And so it kind of just sat on a shelf for a couple months. Then he got called to Denver where they're headquartered and the, um, the head chief people officer used to call them human resources in my day, but now they're called chief people officer. The chief people officer was interviewing him for something and said, hey, are you working on anything creative that's completely outside, um, you know, your, that's for the company, but completely outside your formal job responsibilities? He's like, oh my gosh, it is a total softball. And so he explains this project. And this woman says, wow, what motivated you to do this? He says, well, do you really want to know? And she said, yes. He gets to talk about um, his Christianity and his love for Jesus and how he saw something that didn't feel right. She wasn't a Christian at all. She's like, wow, that's interesting. So he leaves the meeting. Nothing immediately comes of it, but he gets a call in a couple of weeks. He says, did you present something to this woman about poor, the working poor? And he said, yeah. And he said, the craziest thing happened. I was just in a meeting and she just said that she's convinced that the working poor in our company cannot pay for further education. And she approved for us to pay for 100% of nursing education for any of the technicians that want to get further education. And so then he, he ended up leaving the company. And then like six months later, he got another call. And he said, I'm working on some project you had something to do with, something about emergency responses for employees who can't afford problems that are missing work. And so he has a great quote um, that he, <laughs> he says he's misquoting Dallas Willard, and now I'm misquoting him misquoting Dallas Willard. Um, but the quote basically says, your job is to show up and look for ways to have impact and love people, places, things to life, and not worry about the outcome. Let God worry about the outcome. And so these are the kind of amazing um, stories I've gotten to be part of. We're trying to help um, be the church scattered Sundays is the church gathered. We're trying to help be the church scattered. And so I'm super thankful. I still am on this pendulum of not good enough and better than. I'd like to say that maybe we can cut the, the last arcs of the pendulum off. Maybe my pendulum's not going quite as high, but I had kind of a bad day today, so I think that would be inauthentic to tell you. <laughs> Um, but I at least know where my identity is. Um, I know when it can be settled. And um, I just feel very thankful um, that my kids are healthy and very thankful that through their illness, God has showed um, himself to me 
um, in ways that have allowed for beautiful things. So thank you.